We've been working through a series in the character of God. Uh, and so we're coming today to session number five on love, mercy and grace. So let's pray before we uh, come before God. Father, we thank you for these uh, accounts we've heard of how you've blessed people in this, this, this week just gone. Thank you that you're alive, you're relevant to our lives, and you've shown your love and your grace to these people. And we thank you, we give you the glory. And as we turn to look at your character now, Lord, it's, how do we describe the infinite God, Lord? You are amazing, but Lord, I pray for your words, I pray for your anointing, I pray for our ears and our minds to be anointed, that we would hear what you want to say, that we'd be built up in our faith, we'd become more like Christ. We would be melted by your love, that we'd love you more in return. And we ask this in the precious name of Jesus. Amen. Well, I hope you've appreciated thus far um, of what we've looked at. Um, and that my prayer is that our faith will grow as we look at these various attributes of God and the facets of his character, that we can trust him more than we have before. And I think we are so, so blessed that we have a good, loving God who truly does want the best for us. He's done so much for us to draw us into a loving relationship with him. But as I've said before, I will say again, all of God's attributes are shared by all members of the Trinity, Father, Son and Holy Spirit. And we must keep all of his attributes in balance. If we emphasize one attribute over the others, we will end up with an unbalanced view of God and an unbalanced theology. And that's the way that many heresies and cults have begun. And we must avoid that. We've got to realize that all of God's character is in balance. All of it is perfect. All of it is infinite. And uh, it's such a blessing that it is. Well, today I want to start by looking at God's love. And so often when people think about what God is like, they perhaps often think that first of uh, they think first of God's love, that God is love, gloriously so. And because we all like the concept of a loving God, it's often seen as the prime attribute of God. Um, but because for that reason, I guess, I've deliberately let, left God's love until this fifth session, because I want to emphasize in leaving it that, that all of his attributes are essential. All of them are vital and need to be kept in balance. Um, and whilst God's love is vitally important, and in some ways it is part of the core of his being, um, we do need to keep that right balance of God's whole character. God is love. Everything he has ever done or ever thought is motivated by love. The fact that God is love is more than the fact that he is loving. He is the very definition of love and it's inherent to his character. This is not random emotional love that changes with time or changes with the weather or your mood, but it's pure love of the will that is always constant, always undiminished. And that means that if God has ever loved you, and he has, then he must always love you. He never decides one morning to change his mind on loving you. And that means it never grows or diminishes. It's just wonderfully constant 
at the highest possible level. And the extent to which we might feel God's love bears no relation to the actual extent of God's love for us. It is always there, constant. And God's love means that he eternally gives himself to others. God's loving nature means that he is self-giving for the blessing and the good of others. We can perhaps define it like that. God's love means that he eternally gives himself to others. And God's loving nature means that he is self-giving for the blessing and good of others. God's love never wanes. God never gets bored with us. And his love knows no end. That does not mean that God is like, if you like, uh, an indulgent heavenly grandfather. But his love will do and give that which is best for his children. And just as God's love can never diminish, his love can never grow because it is infinite and has been so for eternity past. I think it's interesting that the first mention of love in the Bible is Genesis 22, verse 2. Then he said, take now your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. That was in the context of the sacrifice or the uh, potential sacrifice of Abraham's son Isaac and described there by, by God as his only son. In other words, the son of promise in God's purposes. We could then perhaps look at the first mention of love in Matthew and Mark and Luke, and that's at Jesus' baptism, when God the Father described Jesus as his beloved son, who the Father sent to be our sacrifice for sin. You've got that parallel of sacrifice with Abraham, who was, if you like, led off the hook because God would provide. And then we have the baptism where God uh, is mentioned as the son who would be the sacrifice and on the same mountain as Abraham was sent to. Then in John, in his gospel, uh, his love is first mentioned in John 3.16, which you saw in the children's talk. And we'll see it again in a moment. Uh, so we'll look at that and then. But again, it's in the context of God giving his son. And that, I think, is the, the pinnacle of the outflow of God's love for us. God tells us in 1 John 4.18, just very simply, God is love. But he also tells us in John chapter 17, verse 24, that God's love existed in the Trinity before the foundation of the world. He said, Father, I de desire that they also, whom you gave me, may be with me where I am, that they may behold my glory, which you have given me, for you loved me before the foundation of the world. And given some of the other attributes of God that we've seen, such as his immutability, the fact he doesn't change, and his eternality, that must surely be the case, that the love was there from the foundation of the world. And the, the pure, rich, deep, undefiled love of God has existed between the members of the Trinity from eternity past. And we have the immense privilege of being able to share in that love for all eternity future. 
The ultimate demonstration of God's love for us, of course, is shown in the fact that the Father sent his son Jesus to this earth to die for us. John 3.16 For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. <coughs> I remember years ago hearing a sermon on the word so in that passage. Such was the extent of God's love that he gave. And it's closely echoed in 1 John 3.16. By this we know love, because he laid down his life for us. And we also ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. There are many other scriptures that speak of God's love for us. And if you want um, encouragement, it's a good study to go and look them up. But even before God sent his son to the earth to die for us, it was his love that created the universe in the first place, because he wanted to create people to have a loving relationship with, to love them, to be with them forever. God was never dissatisfied in eternity past, because as perfect God, he couldn't be. But his love is such that he loves to share it. And that's what love is all about, isn't it? <coughs> Excuse me. Let's pause for a moment to consider the pinnacle of love shown by Jesus on the cross for sinful man. Just think, Jesus, as the eternal Son of God, had lived in eternity past in the full presence of the intense, limitless, burningly pure and beautiful love of the Godhead. It was innate to his own character and nature. And yet he left that heavenly bliss because of his love for us. And consider your own heart, the sin, the anger, the lust, the envy, the impurity, the gossip, the selfishness, the hatred, the desire for revenge that we all experience from time to time, far too often. And consider the times when that impurity in your own heart has spilled over into action and hurtful words. Despite all that, actually because of all that, Jesus came to earth to die for us because of his love. And because of the fall, it's inborn in us that we think first about ourselves. As babies, we cry because we want food or a nappy change, more comfort, company. And to, to some, many degrees, that's God-given to the extent it's only by a baby's cry that a parent can try and discern the baby's needs. But the message is essentially selfish. A baby thinks the world is all about him or her. And then as toddlers, there are the tantrums because we want our own way and we don't get it. And that develops into fights with our siblings or friends or playground squabbles and fights because we want life our way. We progress to teenagers and young adults want to experiment with what the world offers, perhaps alcohol, drugs, immoral relationships of various types, all because we want to feel good and have things our way. As adults, we want the most attractive spouse or a good career, a nice home, more money, more power, all for satisfy self. Even in our retirement, we want comfort, maybe some world travel, because, well, we've earned it after all those years of work, haven't we? But it's still self-driven. And I think it's interesting that in Satanism, 
the first law is promotion of self. And that's uncannily modern in our society. And that just shows how ingrained the fall has become in us and how subtle the enemy is in twist, twisting our minds. And outside of life of Christ, our lives are selfish. We multiply that up to include all the sin that has ever been that had ever been committed up to the time of Jesus and has been since. And the weight of global sin is truly enormous. But Jesus came to take all that because of his infinite and unfailing love. We cannot comprehend the weight of God's wrath upon Jesus on the cross as he took the full measure of the punishment of all mankind's sins. And that wrath was what we deserved. No wonder it went dark and ended with an earthquake, because something momentous had happened. It was God's love for us that poured that wrath on his own beloved son, because he loves us so much. God wanted, wants numerous humans to love. And back in his, uh, his early part of his plans, he chose Israel as a special people to be in, con in covenant love with. And his purpose was that they, as a nation, would point the way to God's salvation that was being offered to the world. And God hasn't finished with them yet. In the church, he wants a bride for his son. And the only way that he could achieve that was to give his son the punishment that we deserved. It wasn't the nails that held Jesus to the cross, but his love for us. He knew the work had to be completed and that God's holy nature satisfied. And Paul brings this out in Romans 5, verse 8. But God demonstrates his own love toward us, in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. God didn't, God couldn't wait for us to become righteous before sending Jesus, because that would never happen. Because that would never happen. We, we could never become righteous enough. God took the initiative because of his love. And then in John 13, verse 1, we read, Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come, that he should depart from this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. Jesus didn't cut short his suffering, but he loved his disciples to the end. And I don't think it's pushing the text to apply that to all other disciples of Jesus since then. Jesus took his love to the limit such that he died for each one of us. And there is, of course, no limit to God's love. But there was a limit to Jesus' life on earth so that he and we could live. It also means that God, the whole Godhead, the whole Godhead will love us to the end. Because of Jesus' death, and resurrection we are secure in God's love now and for eternity I think it's a huge slur on God's eternally loving character to suggest that he might or he will ditch us one day if we upset him he took us on knowing how we will live Jesus died for us while we were still sinners so that we can be changed and know eternal life but because of God's love our hearts surely should be melted 
and respond in ever-growing love for him so that we live for him with total devotion. How can we be half-hearted in the light of God's beautiful, sacrificial and infinite love for us? No wonder Jesus was grieved that the Ephesian church had lost its first love for him in Revelation 2. And may that never be said of us. And nor should we become blasé about God's love for us. Our understanding of love is often coloured by the fact that our English word love covers various aspects of love because our language is limited in that regard. Just as an example, the, the, the Greek in which the New Testament is, uh, is written has several words for love. Just a few, it has the word philio, meaning brotherly love, and our word philanthropic comes from that. There's eros, referring to sexual love from which we derive our word erotic. But God's love is usually expressed by the word agape, which is love of the will. And in God's case, it is utterly pure in its motives. God is love, and he has chosen to love every person that he's made. And he can do no other because love is part of his being. Nothing we can do can alter that love, even when we fail him or ignore him. As we saw, don't forget, it was while we were yet sinners, while we were his enemies, that he sent Jesus to die for us, to save us. And that takes love to a new level in our understanding. Romans 8 tells us that no one, nothing can separate us from the love of God. And for that, we will be literally eternally grateful. It's a staggering privilege and joy to know that God the Father, God the Son and God the Holy Spirit give of themselves to show us their love so that we can enjoy true joy and happiness because of that love. It's his nature to show that love towards mankind, which he's chosen to love. And he will continue to do that throughout eternity. And God is entirely self-existent in this love because it's not prompted or caused by any outside factors. He loves because he is love and is loving. Yet the amazing thing is that he also delights to receive our love and that, brings, and that this brings him joy. Zephaniah 3.17 says, the Lord your God is in your midst, the mighty one will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you with his love. He will rejoice over you with singing. It's one of the few times we have uh, got, uh, reference to God's singing in the Bible. And you could argue that one of the major reasons that God made the earth and put humans in it, as we saw just now, is so that he can have a relationship uh, with us and enjoy us. And God's love motivates him to show and share that love. The challenge for us is that Jesus tells us if we love him, we will obey his commandments. 1 John 5, 3. For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not burdensome. And Jesus fulfilled his Father's will to come to earth to die for us, all because of the deep love of the whole Godhead. So we should respond with unwavering love for God. And that often means that we share his love with others, as well as to direct our love to God himself.
1 John 4.11 tells us, Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. For us as believers, God's love is wonderful. For we know that his purposes towards us are always loving. And therefore, because he is God, they are always the best for us. It's his love that sent Jesus to die for us. And the extent of his love means that we are secure in that love for eternity. Nothing that God does for us or towards us will ever be unloving. And as part of Christ's body, even when we sin and God has to discipline us, it's because of his love. For he wants all parts of Christ's body to be healthy and functioning well. For the unbeliever, God's love means that they are without excuse for rejecting his free offer of eternal life. God has done all that he could to show his love. It's seen in creation as well as in Christ. For even in its fallen state, this world that we live in is still full of beauty and proclaims God's glory. And God's love means that he is entirely just to judge sin, for he has done all that he could to save sinners. The tragedy is that so many people choose to reject that love. Well, moving on, another attribute of God that's linked to his love is his mercy, and that's not far removed from his grace. So I'm going to deal with these two together. God's mercy means God's goodness shown towards those in misery and distress. And that's all of us until we come to faith in Christ. And God's grace means God's goodness towards those who deserve only punishment. God's mercy means that we don't receive from God what we do, what we do deserve, and that's punishment. Well, his grace means that we do receive from him that which we don't deserve. And that's his goodness, eternal life, and so on. When David sinned and, offered him the and God offered him the choice of three difficult outcomes, we read in 2 Samuel 24:14, And David said to Gad, I'm in great distress. Please let us fall into the hand of the Lord, for his mercies are great. But do not let me fall into the hand of man. David needed help in his restoration to God, and he knew that God is full of mercy. In Matthew 9, 27, we read of two blind men who followed Jesus. And when Jesus departed from there, two blind men followed him, crying out and saying, Son of God, have mercy on us. They recognised their plight, and they came to God for mercy. And Paul understood this aspect of God's nature in 2 Corinthians 1 verse 3. And he said, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort. Notice there that God is the Father of all mercies. And of course, it was his heart of mercy and grace that drove him to send his son to earth to die for us. But he's also the God of all comfort. He's the place where true comfort can be found. And in view of this aspect of God's character, we are to be merciful too. Matthew 5 verse 7 tells us, Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. And then we also see God's mercy in Ephesians 2 verse 4. 
but God who is rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us. And note here how God is rich in mercy. He doesn't become rich in mercy, but he is. There is no poverty in terms of mercy with God because he's rich in it. And his heart of love wants to pour his mercy upon us. He is the spring of all mercy. It's natural to him and it's his nature to show mercy wholeheartedly. And it's so wholehearted that it drove God in his love for mankind to send his son to earth to die for us. Now that doesn't detract from God's right and wrathful judgment of sinners, but he always shows grace and mercy before judgment. As to God's grace, we often think that this is a New Testament concept. We are so aware that the Old Testament was the context of the law, but grace is often found in the Old Testament as well. There are two main Hebrew words for grace in the Old Testament. These being those English words that are spelled chess and chesed, but I think they're pronounced chen and chesed. And chen is found in the Old Testament 225 times. And it has a sense of pure, unmerited favour from a superior to an inferior. It means divine favour. It's a grace that perseveres and provides. And it's connected with spiritual redemption. I think I'll repeat that. Uh, this word has the sense of pure, unmerited favour from a superior to an inferior. It also means divine favour. And it's a grace that perseveres and provides. And it's connected with spiritual redemption. Surely that concept gives us a good foundation for understanding God's grace. Then the other word, chesed, is found 250 times. Who said there was no grace in the Old Testament? And it means loyal love, loving kindness, especially expressed by God towards his people. And isn't it wonderful that this shines out from our amazing God? But then the main New Testament word, of course, Greek, uh, for grace is the word charis, with the meaning of having the flavour of goodwill, loving kindness, favour and grace. And from these words, we can get a good understanding of what God's grace is about. And I think a good definition uh, would be that the grace of God is favour that is unmerited, totally unrelated to every or any question of human merit. God's grace is not withheld because of sin, nor is it lessened because of sin, or it would not be grace. Grace cannot incur a debt, but flows from God's love for mankind. Let's do that again. The grace of God is favour for that, is favour that is unmerited, totally unrelated to every or any question of human merit. God's grace is not withheld because of sin, nor is it lessened because of sin or it would not be grace. Grace cannot incur a debt, but flows from God's love for mankind. And it's such a blessing for us to know that God shows grace to us as humans who deserve no favour from him, but only punishment. God's grace is never an obligation that he has to show because it's freely given. That's part of his beautiful character to show grace. 
and the lack of obligation on God's part to show grace and mercy is seen in Romans 9.15, which in itself is quoting Exodus 33.19. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whomever I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whomever I will have compassion. That does not mean that God is arbitrary in how and to whom he shows his grace and mercy, because his nature is constant and consistent. And the psalmist recognized this in Psalm 119, verse 132. Look upon me and be merciful to me, as your custom is toward those who love your name. It's God's custom. Peter referred to God as the God of all grace. Uh, in, in, that was in 1 Peter 5.10. And it wasn't just a nice turn of phrase he used, but it was a Holy Spirit-inspired description of our God, the God of all grace. Paul has much to teach us about God's grace and the fact that it's unmerited. None of us deserves it. And that's part of the glory of our salvation, because it's by grace alone and not by works. We cannot gain or keep our salvation by works, although we should diligently serve him as loyal disciples, as an expression of our love and gratitude to him. None of us can earn our salvation because we cannot muster up enough good works to satisfy God's holy nature. Unless we hit the bullseye of righteousness in every thought, deed and motive, and we don't, then we desperately need God's grace and his mercy. And we have the classic verses in Ephesians 2, Verses six to nine, God raised us up together and made us sit together in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, that in the ages to come, he might show the exceeding riches of his grace in his kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace, you have been saved through faith and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. And as our salvation is undeserved and can't be earned, then there's only one way to obtain it, by faith in the death and resurrection of Jesus, so that we receive our salvation by God's grace. But note verses six and seven, God raised us up to the heavenly places that in the ages to come, we might show the exceeding riches of his grace in his kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. The, that, the grace that God has lavished on us in Christ is a demonstration of his kindness. The angels in heaven will see that grace and kindness lavished on God's people. And note, no doubt also will those who as unbelievers come before the great white throne of the Lord's judgment. And the unbelievers then will realize they have rejected the most amazing grace and kindness that it could ever have been shown. And beyond salvation, everything that we receive from God is by grace. For not only can we not own our, earn our salvation, but we cannot earn any other favour from God. We are called to move on in our faith, to walk in fellowship with him and to serve him. But all the blessings that he bestows upon us as we grow are by grace. When we see him face to face at the Bema seat of Christ, any rewards that we receive will be because of his grace. Yes, they are given as an outflow of good and faithful service, but they are not our wages, but a gift of God's grace and kindness. Romans 
6.23 speaks of wages, and that is the wages of sin. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. And note the glorious contrast. The wages of sin is death, that which we earn, which we deserve. But the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. The gift is given by God's grace. We can't earn it, but we must receive it or else we don't benefit from it. So for the believer, God's mercy and grace are wonderful. For, for through them, we are kept from the judgment that we deserve. And also then we receive the eternal salvation and the associated benefits that we don't deserve. We should be ever grateful for these wonderful facets of God's character. And he deserves our eternal worship and praise for them. For the unbeliever, God's mercy and grace are offered again to undeserving people, but they must be received by faith. As an unbeliever rejects these gracious gifts of God, they're rejecting the God who offers them. And when God's mercy is not received, it's not applied to that person. So the judgment that is deserved will fall upon him or her. And when, then, when that happens, God's grace cannot be applied either, because God is just, and he cannot compromise his holy character. And these attributes that we've seen today of, God's, of God, of his love, his mercy, and his grace, they, they, are, they, they deal with wonderful facets of his care for us. And they are a rich source of comfort and blessing for us. We should never take any of them for granted, but receive them with gratitude and seek to show similar care to others. As we receive, so we should freely give. We are God's visible hands and feet, his ambassadors on this earth, and our lives should reflect that. And may we never misrepresent God in the way that we behave, but live to give him the glory for all that he's done for us. In the meantime, let's be melted by the depth of his love for us and the riches of his mercy and grace towards us. Let me just close with um, that classic passage on love in 1 Corinthians 13. Love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. It is not proud. It does not dishonor others. It is not self-seeking. It is not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Love never fails. Isn't that a beautiful reflection of God's character? Can we just ponder those verses uh, for just a moment as we as we close?